What it means to me to be a, an NEA jazz master is a feeling of acceptance and recognition of, of particularly of my peers and colleagues and people that I've worked with all these years. It feels like coming full circle. It's one of the most deeply moving experiences I've ever had in my whole life in music. And not particularly because it's an award as much as it is a, uh, a feeling of, of recognition of my life's work. And, and especially from, from the people that I really most deeply admire and respect. And that's what's most touching and most humbling about it. Because we're all lovers of the music. I, that's one of the things about working in jazz over the years that has been one of my most abiding joys and sources of inspiration is how much love I feel for so many of the people who work in jazz. It, it feeling like I'm getting my love returned. That's 2018 NEA Jazz Master, Todd Barkin. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. Jazz impresario Todd Barkin's name is inextricably linked with one of the nation's legendary jazz clubs, the Keystone Corner. Todd opened the San Francisco Club in 1972, and it was almost immediately recognized as a musician's space. The Keystone Corner was known for Todd's adventurous bookings and his ability to create a home for audiences and musicians alike. Todd Barkin ran the Keystone Corner with that philosophy for more than a decade, until the club's closing in 1983. And while that alone would make him a significant figure in the jazz world, Barkin also worked as a record producer, producing scores of albums for labels like Fantasy Milestone, Concord, and High Note. He worked with Wynton Marsalis at Jazz at Lincoln Center, opening Dizzy's Club Coca-Cola, where Todd served as program director and MC. Todd Barkin's deep love of jazz, his respect for the music and its practitioners, and his knack for curating exciting live performances has made him both a respected and beloved figure in the jazz world. Born in Nebraska and raised in Columbus, Ohio, Todd Barkin's love of music goes back to his earliest childhood. In our home in Columbus, Ohio in particular, there, there was always music everywhere. We went to a lot of concerts. My parents were not musicians themselves, but they were real music fans, and, and some of that love rubbed off on me. And they had records and, and albums playing all the time and radio stations playing all the time. And there was music, it was a house of music. And I took, started taking piano lessons uh, real young at the age of six. So there was always music happening in our home. This is the era of rock and roll. And right. yet jazz somehow is speaking to you. And I know it's, it's difficult, but I just wonder, can you remember what it was that you heard that did kindle your imagination? Yeah, growing up in Columbus, Ohio, which was actually a very, very fertile place for jazz music at that time, that much different than it is now in certain respects, although jazz is still very popular all over the Midwest. But it was more almost like culture shock. I remember very well the music that really, really made me start thinking and whistling and singing along and, and making my heart really sing with it were the music of Errol Garner, Duke Ellington. Actually, Johnny Mathis had a jazz record 
that my parents had that, that I fell in love with, of all people. Sarah Vaughan and then early Jimmy Smith. One of the records that really turned me around early in my life was Mingus Aum, was Charles Mingus. That music, I used to memorize all the, the music in it. Specifically, what was it about the music? It was the rhythm of the music, especially the rhythm and the passion, the intensity of the music. It, it had a great lyric beauty to me, but also the intensity. And I could feel that these people were all telling their own story in their own way, even when I couldn't verbalize that. It was not till years later that I could say those words, but I could tell that these people were really. They, they all were so resolutely individualistic that it really, it really fired my imagination. Well, you certainly had one really important early mentor. Right. I met Rasan Roland Kirk when I was on a bus when I was nine years old, and he became a mentor to me. That was very important to me, and that became an abiding relationship. We would spend a whole day just listening to alto saxophone players. Then we would spend another day listening to tenor saxophone players. Then we'd play, spend a day listening to stride piano players. I mean, to have that kind of guidance as a young person, you know, it wasn't, you know, he didn't give me quizzes and, you know, he wasn't, and he wasn't real pedantic about it. He just said, let's listen to this, let's listen to that. It was just like, let me share some food I really like with you. I feel like my whole, you know, my whole career in music really grew out of my friendships with the musicians that I met and got to work with. When you went to Oberlin, you began producing jazz concerts there. And you were, you were just a kid. How did you do that? Uh, first of all, yeah, I, I started working on some jazz concerts when I was at Oberlin College. When I, I started going there when I was 18 and 19, 20 years old, because I had some relationships with some musicians already. I had met some musicians already, and I was able to reach out to the musicians that I knew and just make phone calls. And Oberlin was close enough to New York City. These people would come out. They would drive out to Oberlin. Dizzy came and played, and that's when I first met Kenny Barron. He played at Oberlin in 1964 with uh, Dizzy Gillespie, James Moody, Kenny Barron, Chris White, and Rudy Collins. Uh, that's when I met Miles Davis, when he came there with Ron Carter and Tony Williams and Wayne Shorter and Herbie Hancock. So, I mean, I was very lucky, and, but there were a lot of kids working together. It was the beginning of the Oberlin Jazz Society. It, jazz was kind of an insurgent activity at that time, in the early Oberlin days. You weren't supposed to pr play jazz in the practice rooms. Now there's an Oberlin Jazz building and an Oberlin Jazz Department and a whole other, it's, it's evolved, but I was more in the early days. You moved to San Francisco right after Oberlin. That was in 1968. And the rest, as they say, is history. I drove out there in a 1941 Cadillac out to California. And I started playing right away with a, a couple, few bands out there. And one was called Kwani and the Quanditos. It was 
Afro-Cuban jazz band. Kwani and the Quanditos was a great, we played Mongo covers mainly, and we worked all the time. So I went to the Keystone Corner, which was a blues bar at that time, and I went there to get a job. And I said, you know, can I, we can have Latin jazz on Monday nights, free spaghetti. You know, I was trying to get us a gig, you know. And uh, the guy says, I, I don't know about that. He says, uh, I'm, I'm trying to get rid of this place. Maybe you should buy this club. I was 25 years old. Maybe you should buy this club and then you can hire your own band. And I said, well, I've only got $8,500 to my name. And he said, well, come back here in a couple of days and we'll see what we can do. So I came back in a couple days, and, and then voila, all of a sudden at the age of 25, I owned my own jazz club. Although it was a, it was, it was a rock club, and we made it a jazz club. We painted, repainted the front of the club, and he gave me two free nights of Jerry Garcia and Merle Saunders that they owed to the club because they'd canceled a bunch of times. And then all of a sudden I had Michael White and, and uh, Bobby Hutcherson and McCoy Tyner, and we were a jazz club. And you were off and running. At this point, it's 1972. Tell me how the Keystone Corner fit into the culture of San Francisco. To really understand Keystone Corner, you have to understand that this was still part of the hippie era. It was a psychedelic jazz club. We had psychedelic murals on the walls. We, we got ionizers to take the pot smoke out of the air so other customers could enjoy the music without any kind of impediment. So it was really a you know, a hippie kind of bohemian culture that the Keystone Corner grew out of. When I was in San Francisco, there were poets on the street and there were poets in the Keystone Corner handing out poems. And there were all kinds of actors, people in the rock community and the jazz community and the classical musicians and the poets and the, and the artists and the musicians would all hang out. There was a real bohemian scene. We were right around the corner from the City Lights bookstore in North Beach. So it was, it was a much more, more of a concentrated artistic community and also a very a multifarious artistic community, a much better integrated community than it is now. I mean, physically, you, you, you had a lot of people intermingling. It was a home for all kinds of people. One of the most important things about Keystone Corner was, was the integration of different vectors of our society coming together with, with our music, which is one of the main reasons that our music is so wonderful, because it does bring so many cultures together and well, groups were, of people. You were known for, and I'm quoting now, your adventurous bookings. <laughs> you would have double bills and triple bills, but nobody was an opener because all the acts were equally talented. I felt very fortunate that I was able to do a lot of those things, you know, to have adventuresome booking policies where we could have the Dexter Gordon Quartet and the Bobby Hutcherson Quintet and the Max Roach Quartet. And then I could just put up on the marquee, Max, Dex, Hutch. You know, I had three bands playing nonstop from eight o'clock at night until two in the morning. And no, nobody was an opening act. Nobody was a closing act. No, that was the wonderful thing. It was a real blessing to be able to use the Keystone Corner kind of as an open canvas to paint many pictures and create many kinds of interesting combinations. Well, musicians loved the club. They loved playing there. It was a musician's space. How did you make that happen? How did you allow that to happen? 
Well, I mean, being a musician myself, I think that was a good starting place. It just evolved very naturally from the very beginning. It became a home away from home for all the musicians who were playing there. And, you know, that's been one of the uh, mixed blessings of my life in music is, is perhaps sometimes I've been told that I love the music too much. But I'm very proud of that, and I'm going to take that with me all, all the rest of my days, you know, working with the music. But it became a musician's place because of all the love that we put into it and all the people we had working there. I mean, the person at the door would be a musician, the person in the ticket booth would generally be a musician, and if they weren't a musician, they were somebody that just totally loved the music. The sound man and the people working in the office. I mean, we went out of our way to have people that were really committed to, to playing the music. For one thing, we couldn't pay that tremendously well, so that made it a lot a lot easier if you were working with people that really loved the music and, and didn't need to be tremendously well paid. So that happened very naturally. We had a tremendously dedicated staff of people and the love that was put into there, we made it a home for, for the musicians. Not only was it a place to play, but a place to hang out. You know, when the gigs were over at night, that was just maybe the halfway point. I mean, people would hang out till two or three o'clock in the morning or sometimes even later than that. It was, a, it was a home away from home for the musicians. And musicians came together a couple of times and did benefits for Keystone Corner, for example, for you getting your liquor license, not just beer. Right. When it came time when, when we needed to raise money for a liquor license or to knock down a wall and add some space and build a kitchen, uh, musicians actually got together and organized a, a benefit concert to raise funds in, a, in bigger halls, like the Paramount Theater in Oakland. Uh, Rasan Roland Kirk, my childhood friend, and Freddie Hubbard, who lived in Los Angeles, McCoy Tyner, Ron Carter, and Elvin Jones, who are all regular friends of the Keystone Corner, my friends and friends that love the club, and we raised enough money for a liquor license in 1975. And then Grover Washington Jr., who was the best man at my wedding, and George Benson, who was one of the earliest artists who played at the Keystone Corner regularly, they did another benefit concert where we built a kitchen and you know added space and a new ventilation system. So, like I was saying, is the musicians helped create this club. great story that you told about Miles Davis. Well, talking about friends and, and the importance of friends in my life and at the Keystone Corner, Miles Davis was the only musician that actually gave us back money. He loved to play the Keystone Corner, and at one time he played a whole, whole week there, six nights, and it was a wonderful experience. And we had taken in enough money, we were really taking a big risk for this gig. We were paying him $12,500 for the week. And it was in 1974. I'll never forget it as long as I live. And I paid the band off because we paid all the musicians in cash. There weren't any checks. So Miles had played for a whole week at the Keystone Corner. And, and on Saturday night, I paid the band. The roadie was actually the percussionist, M. Toomey. So I, I paid M. Toomey $12,500 cash. 
and I felt good. We're, you know, whatever we take in on Sunday is our money, and I felt really good about the whole thing. And the very next night, M. Toomey comes back, and he's got one of my envelopes in his hand, and it had $2,500 in the envelope. And he hands it back to me, and he said, Miles wants you to have this $2,500 because he knows you need it a lot more than he does. They were very flush at that time. And he said, listen, you, you, he knows you need this money to pay your bills, and he always appreciates playing here, so you take this money back. That's so, a great story. So that's, I, that's the kind of thing you live for in, in our music. And it's just an indication how sometimes things are not what they appear to be in terms of you know, Miles was known for being very gruff and very, very difficult, but he also could, you know, took really good care of his friends and people that he really cared about. You recorded dozens of albums at Keystone Corner. Mm -hmm. What was your thinking behind that? What made you decide to do it? How did you arrange to do it? There was always money issues, so this had to be an extra cost as well. It was, yeah. Well, we, we basically tried to record as much as we could at Keystone Corner merely as uh, archival recordings because it, it was very evident very quickly that there was a lot of very special music being played at Keystone Corner. We didn't want it just all to go up in thin air. So we would record like on cassettes and, and we got real fancy and we had a reel-to-reel -reel player. The quality is mixed. Sometimes it comes out very clear and sometimes it's it's at the mercy of how the you know how the band was miked at that time. There were some real recording sessions, live recording sessions done at Keystone Corner, like for example, Rasan Roll and Kirk Bright moments, and and McCoy Tyner, Atlantis, and uh, Youssef Latif Ten Years Hence, and Teti Montaliu live at the Keystone Corner. But that was maybe only uh, 15 or 20 of those sessions during the whole 11-year existence of Keystone Corner. Otherwise, I tried to record as often as I could archivally. There were a few artists that didn't want to be recorded under any circumstances, and that's fine. Uh, the great Bill Evans, when he was there at Keystone Corner, asked me to record because I think Bill Evans had a sense that it was the end of his days, which it turned out to be, but right before he passed. So, with Bill Evans, it was at the request of the artist. And even though they were archival recordings, they wound up to be very important because it was at the end of his life. And they wound up to be 16 CDs that came out of that. Basically all made on cassette. And that's the last waltz and consecration. consecration. How big was Keystone Corner? How many people did it seat? Well, when we started out, when we first moved into Keystone Corner, it was about 140 to 150 seats. When we closed, we were closer to 200 seats. So it grew as we knocked down a wall here and there. And how much were tickets? Tickets when we started out were $3 during the week and $3.50 on the weekend. $1.50 or $2 on Monday nights. 
And then we had student prices, which were half price for students with student IDs any night but Friday and Saturday. I was definitely overly idealistic and, and, and overly utopian. And if I had to do it over, all over again, I probably would, would be the same. I really am proud of being able to get the music to people for the most reasonable price possible in the most humanistically you know, engaging way. Just creating a loving environment for the, both the music and the people listening to the music. That is not a lot of money, even then. No, it wasn't. It was very reasonable even then. It reminded me of one wonderful story. When Sonny Rollins first played there, we were all excited because Sonny Rollins was coming to the club and we couldn't have been more excited. We raised the ticket price to $4. We were really uh, pumped up. And so Sonny Rollins, the first set he played was exactly a half hour long. And he thought it was like two hours. He was just into it. Nobody left. We didn't clear the house in those days anyway. So people stayed for the next set. So I said, Sonny, wasn't, wasn't that a little short? I think we need to make it like closer to an hour. That would be nice. You know, but I didn't get upset. I was just puzzled. And he said, Todd, uh, we won't call them sets. We'll call them episodes. So I, I took out my marks a lot, you know, and I put a new sign up in the in the window with my scotch tape and a new piece of stationery. said, continuous music from 9.30 till 2. You know, and he did about three episodes, you know, <laughs> that evening. But we went with the flow. But that was one of the greatest virtues of that place. I mean, sometimes the sets, the guys would play for two hours if the musicians felt like it. Musicians were, were supreme in that type of environment. And unfortunately, it also closed in 1983. It was just untenable financially. It wasn't making a lot of money, and it closed because, you know, we had financial difficulties. But also, I think we could, at the very end, we could have raised some money had I been able to re renegotiate my lease. So it was a combination of not being able to get my lease and also, you know, struggling financially, which I always, you know, worked by the seat of my pants. And then you pulled up stakes and moved clear across the country to New York City. Right. I moved back here in 1983, and I'm, I'm very glad I did come back here, but I always have a, you know, a, a, a tinge of, of melancholy for my San Francisco experience because it was, it was my foundational experience of my whole life in this music. But one of the most wonderful things about our jazz community is that we're at home no matter where we are all over the world. When I came back here, I had many, many friends, and I started doing some bookings for a club called Lush Life, and I renewed my li life in the music and started working with the Boys Choir of Harlem. Yes, I would love to talk to you about your work with the Boys Choir of Harlem. They sing in so many different styles. Their music has such a wide net, and you added jazz to their repertoire. One of the most important things I've done in my life in music was working with the uh, Boys Choir of Harlem because I helped create a, a working ensemble that traveled all over the world. You took them on their first tour. Right, I took them on their first national and international tours. I put them together with people like Kenny Burrell and, and Billy Taylor and Grady Tate and, and other musicians, and we did recordings together. Uh, Kenny Burrell did a great recording with him called Love is the Answer, which he wrote the music and the lyrics for. Yeah. 
doing that work with the Boys Choir of Harlem was one of the most satisfying experiences of my whole life in music. Working with kids in general is, it has to be one of the greatest experiences you can have as a musician, creative person, a producer, or any other kind of function we have in the music, because you always feel like you, know, you could be affecting the rest of their lives. Working with children, which I even was recently able to do with the uh, Jazz House kids, uh, for Christian McBride and Melissa Walker and that wonderful organization. And it was one of the most heartwarming experiences of my life because you can tell out of a group of maybe 100 kids that four or five of those kids are going to you know, turn around and be listening to Sarah Vaughan the rest of their lives or John Coltrane, what, whatever you're able to really stimulate there. Instill them with the love you feel because one of the most wonderful things about our music is that it, it becomes your friend for the rest of your life. You can turn to it, and it, it's always there for you. It's one of the most reliable friends you could ever have. So with young people, the, the main responsibility we have who work with this music is to, is to make them feel that love and that, that it's something, it's all positive. I do want to talk about your producing, because right. you produced hundreds right. of jazz recordings. Tell me about the work of a producer. I mean, we all see produced by, but what does that mean? That's a good question. Well, I, st I started producing albums as kind of a function of having the Keystone Corner and doing some recordings out of there. Then some of my earliest experiences producing were uh, with people that were integral parts of the Keystone Corner, like Bobby Hutcherson. But being a, a jazz producer, being a record producer, is a very kind of special kind of situation because you have to wear a lot of hats. To be a producer in the jazz world, you have to be a combination of producer, director, cinematographer, camera grip, and, and a whole lot of things. The only thing you don't usually do is run the soundboard. Some producers even do that. The main job of a, of a jazz recording producer is to create as nice an environment for the music, music as you can create, work with the leader, in artistically putting together a program. A producer in a jazz recording is intimately involved in, you can't go over budget. They're very real budgets. Most times you get a finite budget and if you go over the budget, you actually have to pay for that out of your own pocket. So you have to have control of the budget, but you wanna still give people as much artistic love and artistic support mm -hmm. You want to create as, as welcoming and engaging an environment for the music as you possibly can. You work on, in terms of putting together the band and putting together the, the repertoire and putting together the artistic components, you work in varying degrees depending on how hands-on the leader is. You give them feedback. That take was seven minutes long, eight minutes long. That was uh, you know, nine minutes long. So it won't get much play on the radio. But at the same time, you want to encourage them to express themselves artistically. And sometimes eight minutes is the way it is because that's what artistically makes it as wonderful as it is. And with our music, sometimes it takes eight or ten minutes to really tell a story that we want to tell. And jumping way ahead, you produced the 2015 Grammy Award winner for Latin Jazz Album, which was Arturo O'Farrell's The Offense of the Drum.
And this had to be really gratifying for you because you worked with his father too. Well, my relationship with Latin jazz, Afro-Cuban jazz, that relationship is one of the longest lived in, in my whole life in music because as I, when I first came to San Francisco, I started playing Latin jazz. And then when I came here to, to New York City, one of the first groups I worked with was Jerry Gonzalez and the Ford Apache Band, which was a very wonderful cutting-edge Latin jazz band, which led to me starting working with Chico O'Farrell, who is Arturo O'Farrell's father. And so I started working with Chico O'Farrell and his comeback record in 1995-96. And then I got to work with Babel Valdez, and then I got to work with Arturo O'Farrell, Chico's son, and, and even Arturo O'Farrell's children. So I've worked with three generations of the O'Farrell family. So I feel like that's my Latin jazz family, and I've had the privilege and the honor to work with those people. You bump into Wynton Marsalis as you're walking down the street, and suddenly it's another page turner for you. What happened? So in, in 81, 82, I had the opportunity to work with with Wynton Marsalis as part of the Art Blakey Band. Then, you know, like, like in a movie, the, the leaves of the calendar <laughs> blow in the wind, and it, I'm living in New York, and I'm walking down the street, and I, I bump into Wynton Marsalis on 8th Avenue, and he says to me, oh man, he says, I'm starting jazz at Lincoln Center, and we're gonna have a jazz club in there, and maybe you should come there and work. And lo and behold, I wind up starting to work with jazz at Lincoln Center at the turn of this century. I'm working with a guy that I had first worked with, with Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. 20 years before, in, in my own club. Now I wind up helping to start Dizzy's Club Coca-Cola and do so, so much other work with Wynton Marsalis at Jazz at Lincoln Center. So you booked the acts and you were the MC. Dizzy's isn't Keystone Corner. I mean, it's, it's different, but obviously there's some overlap too. What went into your thoughts when you booked Dizzy's? Dizzy's Club Coca-Cola is like a dream come true in terms of creating a, a, a wonderfully utopian place for a jazz club with ideal acoustics. And it's, it's a wonderful environment for our music. It's one of the greatest jazz clubs ever created physically and, and artistically. But the challenges at, at Dizzy's were with Dizzy's Club Coca-Cola being one of three major venues in Jazz at Lincoln Center. We had to integrate the activities of this new creation, Dizzy's Club Coca-Cola, with the other venues. You know, sometimes I felt like I had less latitude in terms of creating, you know, triple bills and double bills and, and all kinds of, you know, two-hour sets and whatever else I wanted to do, creating festivals in the club. But I wound up creating the Women in Jazz Festival at, at Dizzy's and the Generations in Jazz Festival. Now the Generations in Jazz Festival is still part of my living legacy at, at Dizzy's. And that happens every September. And you, we have hundreds of musicians play for the whole month of September. It's really hard to balance business with such a deep love for jazz and jazz musicians. You know, it would, it's, it's a challenge for anyone. I, well, I know I'm naive and I know I'm a little utopian. But I never would have become a, a, a jazz club owner if I weren't that way. No, I really didn't know what I was doing when, when I opened Keystone Corner, except that I loved jazz. Fortunately, I had enough belief and enough 
unbelievable energy and dedication to keep at it, to work 16, 18 hours a day and more. And I still feel that kind of, of utopian idealism. I still feel that. Sometimes I think to myself, Todd, you're still very impractical in many ways. And I've paid for that impracticality financially and, and in other ways, but I'm very proud of it at the same time. You know, you know, take care of the music and the music will take care of you, which has kind of become my motto over the last 50 years or so. I do feel hope swings eternal. So that's my story. And I'm sticking to it. That is 2018 NEA Jazz Master, Todd Barkin. The NEA has just named the 2019 class of Jazz Masters. They are, drumroll please, Abdullah Ibrahim, Bob DeRoe, Maria Schneider, and Stanley Crouch. Find out more about the NEA Jazz Masters, past and present, at arts.gov. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. You can subscribe to Artworks wherever you get your podcasts, so please do. And if you're so inclined, leave us a rating on Apple. It really does help people to find us. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.